So today, um, if you would, go ahead and be turning with me to Revelation chapter 20. Um, we have we started last week um, with this kind of last major section of this study. Uh, I'm calling it the end and the beginning. Um, and last week we looked at um, some common areas where no matter what view you might hold on to today, all of those particular views um, have, have those kind of common uh, qualities, common hopes that we talked about last week. Today we are going to look at um, what I would consider one of the more difficult um, to grapple with areas in Scripture in regards to uh, settling on ideas, being sure of those ideas. Um, so uh, I would say here that this is one of those areas in Christian theology that we ought to be willing to show grace um, abundantly in areas that we differ in. Um, so when we dig into this today, and what we'll do is we'll start by reading, and then I want to give some principles uh, that I think apply here. What I'm not going to do today is I'm not going to give you um, one of these that you ought to believe, um, because I think that they, that the ones that we're going to discuss today um, have historically been believed by the church for ages and ages, um, and that a valid argument can be made for uh, the, the three that we're going to focus on uh, and look at today. We are going to look at one in particular that um, <laughs> it, here's, here's, what I will, here's what I will say. Uh, throw a stone in church and you will hit uh, nine out of ten individuals that probably hold to this view uh, today. Um, and it's the view that I would, um, in my more aggressive form, dismiss outright, okay, um, for a number of reasons. And we'll, we'll, when I lay out the principles that we should follow um, in regards to evaluating these, uh, these ideas, um, one of the primary principles I want us to consider is that we should always allow clear passages in Scripture to guide our understanding of the passages of text that are unclear. We should not take ideas that we generate or come up with from unclear passages and then force those back on passages that are more clear. Okay, so that's one general principle. Um, another general principle that I would uh, put before uh, everyone is... Uh, is this. Consider how the learned individuals of Jesus' day misunderstood the prophecies about Christ. Consider that. Consider that the ones who knew the text missed it completely. The principle that I would pull from this is that prophetic text can be extremely difficult for us to understand, even with much learning, much education, much time spent in it. 
And this is why when, when I consider that, that I, that I go back to that first principle. Let the clear text, and in this regard, let the text that is not the prophetic text, let the text of the Gospels, let the text of the New Testament outside of Revelation guide your understanding when it comes to the book of Revelation. Um, again, I'm not going to give you uh, answers in regards to what you should think about this today. Uh, I want to guide the way that you think and consider it. So that brings us to a third principle uh, that I would put forward in regards to understanding anything in regards to Revelation and the end. Um, is that if you find yourself far from what has been believed by the church as a whole throughout history, then you should guard yourself carefully against those beliefs. Right? This is one of those areas, like whenever I considered joining historical theology with systematic theology through this whole journey that we've been on, this was one of those sections in systematic that I thought having that historical grounding is going to be important here because it gives us this guardrail against just going off of what we believe that we've read, right? Like there is a there is a healthy approach to considering that God has from the time of Christ to us today moved by the same spirit that he's moving in us, in those generations before, He stirred with them the same desires to know Him and to chase after Him and to know Him rightly. So we ought to be able to look back to the things that they understood to give guidance to things that we consider today. This is not to say that the church has authority over Scripture, right? We're not putting ourselves in that position, right? Because Scripture has authority over the church, and if the Holy Spirit moves through the Scriptures, then we would expect those who read the Scriptures, guided by the Spirit, to have some form of a collective agreement on things. And for much of Scripture, for the majority of Scripture, I would say, um, that is the case. And then we find areas where historically there's not been an agreement from the beginning to now. This is one of those areas where... Uh, believers have from the very beginning, considering the book of Revelation, considering the promise of Christ's return, come to different conclusions. Okay, um, so I'm going to read one of the areas. This is Revelation chapter 20. I'm going to read from verse 1 down through the first part of verse 8. This is one of those texts that, um, and we'll discuss the different views that come around this, though we will not have time today. Uh, to dig necessarily into arguments for and against uh, any of these. I just want to lay general ideas out there. Um, and then we're going to look at one. Um, there, so there are four that are kind of held today, uh, three of which have been held for a long time, one of which um, is relatively new in church history, and this is the one that is prevalent for us. Okay, This is the one that you've seen movies about, right? Um, and I want us to consider um, I want us to consider the implications of that one. I think there are some I think there are some dangerous implications in the way 
that that particular, this is the dispensational pre-tribulation rapture uh, premillennial view, right? Not the historical premillennial view, but the one that is um, within the last 200 years um, really taken over uh, the church's understanding in the Western church, um, which includes which includes that. So let's look at this text that has caused this um, difficulty in regards to the return of Christ and the way that we understand that playing out historically. So, Revelation, chapter 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit in a great chain. And he seized the dragon the ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their forehead or who had not worshipped the beast and its image and had not received uh, its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. So this text, speaking of a thousand years, a thousand years, a thousand years, um, this is uh, the millennium, right? The millennial reign of Christ. This is the text um, where we will find... Um, so I'm going to lay out for you... This is not a... a and fast timeline that I'm going to lay out, but I want to lay out for you an ordering um, of the development of the church's understanding um, of this millennial reign um, from the time of the early church to today. So I'm going to give you three, actually, let's, yeah, I'm going to give you three, um, Three particular views. We'll deal with the fourth after we lay these three out. So we have premillennialism. This is Christ returns before the thousand years. We have postmillennialism, which is Christ returns after the thousand years. Um, and then we have amillennialism, which is there is no actual playing out of a millennium in the way that the pre and post would tend to hold to it. Um, but that time is now. So that the amillennialists would say that we are currently living in uh, this 
uh, period in, in history. So, the early church began with um, the predominant view being uh, premillennialism, right? That is, um, that if you read this text, it would seem that this is some event in the future, and that future event will come, and these things will play out, um, and then there will be a thousand years, and, and um, there, it may or may not be a literal thousand years, but there will be some period of time in which Christ reigns uh, on earth in this, in this state in which Satan is bound up and at the end of which Satan will be released and then there will be uh, the great putting down of the enemy and then the rest of eternity. Right? So that was the view um, from the very beginning. You can find this view um, in the early preachers of the church. Um, as things developed in the church's uh, in the history of the church, um, the second view to emerge um, was the amillennialist view. That is, that there is no physical, like no, no literal thousand years in the future that will happen, but that Christ is currently reigning with those that are spoken of here, um, that we find ourselves in this time of the millennium. Um, and then sometime after that, uh, we find the development of postmillennialism. Um, it so one thing that we're one thing that we're going to see in the development of these views, and this is one of those this is one of those um, areas that that like the farther that we get down this stream of history when these things develop, the more that we should be cautious of them. Right. So um, if you're looking for like just safety in numbers type of approach to these things, historically, the, the, the longest lived of these views would be a historical premillennial view. After that, amillennialism, after that, postmillennialism, and then um, almost in response to postmillennialism, um, we find the... Uh, the pre-tribulation um, dispensational premillennialist view uh, emerging out of that. So um, let's let's talk real quickly about the view that probably I would suspect um, many of you um, either find yourself holding today, or at some point in the past perhaps held held this view. This is probably the uh, the dispensational view. Um, so this particular view, which um, is very early, excuse me, excuse me, very late in church history. Now, when I talk about late, I'm going to give you some dates for when this view was developed. Um, and it was less than 200 years ago that this view was developed. Now, some of you may hear 200 years, and that may seem like a whole lot of time that has passed, but if you consider that that would um, exclude a large majority of the church through the history of the church, um, that no one had this view, and then it develops um, 200 years ago, um, it should it should cause us to, to wonder why did this... Why did this view? How did this view uh, come to be? So I'm um, going to give you some names here. 
John Nelson Darby and the Plymouth Brethren were the originators of the dispensational premillennialist view. Um, and this originated in the 1830s. So 1830s was when this view started to kind of come on the scene. Um, and it was it captured the attention of some pretty well-known um, thought leaders, uh, Dwight L. Moody um, being one of those, um, William Blackstone, and then uh, probably the most influential in, in the, if I'm an, asking the question, why is it so prevalent? Um, how did it become so prevalent? Um, Schofield um, and the Schofield Reference Bible uh, included this dispensational view and uh, particularly this pre-tribulation rapture view. Um, and as a result of that, um, many, many, many individuals um, leveraging that, that reference Bible, um, this view has come to uh, really, like, it's proliferated through society in such a way that not only is it something within the church, but those who have never been to church um, have been made aware of this particular view, and so much has this view influenced that literally movies have been made um, in regards to uh, the views put forward by this uh, dispensational premillennialist, including pre-tribulation rapture. Now, what do I mean by that? Uh, what I mean by that, if you, if, if perhaps you've not looked into this at all, um, but so there's, I'm going to make a distinction between historic premillennialism and the dispensational premillennial. Pre, I'm going to get stuck on that word a hundred times. I'm just going to say pre-mill from now on. <laughs> the historic pre-mill view versus the dispensational pre-mill view. Um, the primary difference being in um, the dispensational view putting forward the idea that before the tribulation there would be a, ra a secret rapturing away of the church so that the church would not undergo the tribulation. Now there are a couple of views in the way and the timing that that takes place. Um, but you could effectively consider it to be um, there will be a secret rapture, not the second coming, right? Not the second coming, um, but a secret second coming um, to take away the church so that the church does not undergo um, these difficult times. Um, one thing that I will say to that is that that view seems to me to be a view that we have an appetite for because of where we find ourselves and the comfort in which we find ourselves. Um, that idea that you would not undergo tribulation but instead would be saved from it um, is to be quite honest, a view that we are privileged to in the time and history that we find ourselves. 
where the church is established in a way in which we could uh, live the majority of our lives without great deal of persecution. Um, and from that, we can uh, develop this idea that um, we deserve to be relieved from that persecution and that we are guaranteed by God to be saved from that persecution. And a, a great deal of the way that we, even in some of the variants of the way that we approach just general church living and um, our general wellness and well-being um, has been uh, affected by this um, privileged position that we find ourselves in in this age of the church um, to where God has indeed shown us great blessings, great mercies, um, but where many within the church, even today, this idea of escaping tribulation would be foreign to them because as the gospel has come to them, it has thrust them into tribulation. That the very places that they find themselves living are hostile now to the gospel. So you would understand, at least I would hope that you would understand, how someone who did not find themselves in a place where they were um, rescued from persecution would find it hard to think that at the very end that that would, that that would be the case, right? Um, I think there's a danger in that as well. Um, if this view that is a relatively new view in church history is wrong, then it prepares the church in a negative way in the event that it's wrong. Because what happens if you find yourself not in a raptured away before the difficulties come type of situation, but instead you find yourself in the midst of great tribulation? I believe that there is a risk in this for us to be unprepared in some regard in the event that we find ourselves facing tribulation, facing trials, facing difficulties. And this, again, the church from the, the foundational moments of the church up until very recently in history has the, the majority of that time has not been... Calm. It has not been free of trial or persecution or like where you could gather like and not have some concern about whether or not persecution was going to come because you gathered in that way. Like, and I would go so far as to say is that is a likely reason that such a view never developed early within the church, but because the church was well acquainted with persecution well acquainted with the trials that came with being a believer. And I think also that this is, in part, why we would find in the development of the church's understanding, post-millennialism, as well as 
um, the dispensational raptured away um, coming later down the line, right? Um, it it um, should not surprise us, at least, that uh, it would be hard for those who found themselves in tribulation um, the majority of their walk to think that they were going to necessarily escape it, right? Um, so I'm going to give you um, really quickly, <clears throat> I'm going to give you some kind of definitional um, things around these particular views. I'm going to start with uh, amillennialism uh, since it um, says that we're kind of currently in this time frame. Um, and I'm for this, I'm literally going straight from the systematic theology text here. So uh, forgive me for um, simply reading this, but I could not say it uh, and, and summarize it any, any better than this. Um, so this is from Grudem Systematic Theology. So specifically speaking towards amillennialism, um, this, is, this view is called amillennialism because it maintains that there is no future millennium yet to come since amillennialists believe that Revelation chapter 20 is now being fulfilled in the church age. They hold that the millennium is described, the, the millennium described there is currently happening. The exact duration of the church age cannot be known, and the expression thousand years is simply a figure of speech for a long period of time in which God's perfect purposes will be accomplished. According to this position, the present church age will continue until the time of Christ's return. When Christ returns, there will be a resurrection both of believers and unbelievers. The bodies of believers will rise to be united or reunited with their spirits and enter into full enjoyment of heaven forever. Unbelievers will be raised to face the final judgment and eternal condemnation. Believers will also stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But this judgment will only determine degrees of reward in heaven, for only unbelievers will be condemned eternally. At this time also the new heavens and new earth will begin immediately after the final judgment. The eternal state will commence and continue forever. Um, this scheme is quite simple because all of the end time events happen all at once, immediately after Christ's return. Some amillennialists say that Christ could return at any time, while others argue that certain signs have not yet been fulfilled. Um, and then now we'll, so that's, that's amillennialism. There's no future uh, millennium. We are in it now. Um, when Christ returns, the, the completion of all these things and, and moving into uh, eternity is, uh, is what we're looking for uh, when we're considering that view. So post-millennialism. We'll look at that. We'll look at that one here. Here next. According to this view, the progress of the gospel and the growth of the church will gradually increase so that a larger and larger portion of the world's population will be Christians. As a result, there will be significant Christian influences on society. Society will more and more function according to God's standards and gradually a millennial age of peace and righteousness will occur on earth. This millennium will last for a long period of time. 
not necessarily a literal 1,000 years. And finally, at the end of this period, Christ will return to earth. Believers and unbelievers will be raised. The final judgment will occur and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Uh, we will enter into the eternal, the eternal state. <clears throat> All right, so that's post-millennialism. So again, to reiterate that one, that view would say that um, the church is going to progressively move throughout this commission that has been placed on it, that it will ultimately be successful in this in a way that affects society, and that at some point in the future, when that occurs, when there's that significant influence on society due to the widespread uh, nature of the gospel and its effects, um, that at that point there will be this moving into this millennial uh, time, and then after a time there, uh, Christ will uh, return. So that's the post-millennial view. Now let's look at historic. This is historic premillennialism. Um, so uh, differentiating this again from the pre pre-trib uh, dispensational view, this is the historical uh, premillennial view, um, which again was the view held uh, very early um, in in like after the founding of, of the church here. So according to this viewpoint, the present church age will continue as it nears the end. A time of great tribulation and suffering comes to the earth. <clears throat> after that time of tribulation, at the end of the church age, Christ will return to earth to establish a millennial kingdom. When he comes back, believers who have died will be raised from the dead. Their bodies will be reunited with their spirits. And these believers will reign with Christ on earth for 1,000 years, some premillennial, excuse me, some premillennialists take this to be a literal 1,000 years, and others understand it, understand it to be a symbolic expression for a long period of time. During this time, Christ will be physically present on the earth in His resurrection body and will reign as King over the entire earth. The believers who have been raised from the dead and those who were on earth when Christ returns will receive glorified resurrection bodies that will never die. And in these resurrection bodies, they will live on earth and reign with Christ. So that's the historical uh, premillennialist or the classical premillennialist, premillennialist view. Um, I'm not going to necessarily put forward that you should, that you should hold um, any of the three that I mentioned, or if you... Have the happen to hold the dispensational view here? Um, what the only thing that I would say in that regards, in that regard is understand that what you believe is pretty new to church history, um, and also understand the potential dangers of it if you're wrong, right? So like if you're wrong and you find yourself in the age or in the happen you happen to be the generation that the millennium that great tribulation that comes before it occurs and you're wrong about rapture you, you may find yourself unprepared for what it means to go from luxury to lacking right like you may find yourself thinking that you're going to escape and instead finding yourself um, dealing with persecution and tribulation um, and uh, if you do find yourself there, if we find ourselves there, let us understand that we are not alone. <laughs> we are not alone because the great majority of the church 
has found itself throughout history dealing with great tribulation and has withstood it for the same reason that the church will withstand the tribulation that might come upon it, and that is because the Holy Spirit of God is greater within you than the one who is in the world. Um, With that being said, I want to end um, with uh, one, one passage of text. When I, cons- when I consider this, this is one of those clear passages of text to me. Um, if you would, turn with me to Matthew chapter 28, and I want, I want to leave you with this. So no matter which of these three historical views, if you were, if you were pre-mill, a-mill, or post-mill, um, I, I think any of those three, like just know why it is that you, that you hold to that belief and you'll be you'll be good i think a lot of people who find themselves in the dispensational um pre pre-mill camp as i as i myself was um in in the past before i really did any studying of my own on it um just guard let us let us constantly guard ourselves um I think that it's good to realize that we find ourselves uh, privileged in many regards um, in, as, as the church in America. Um, let, that not, let these good times not make us into a weak church. That is my, that is my only hope there. Um, now, I want to leave you with this text, and I think when I, when I read this, it is... It is clear as a bell to me. Like, this is so clear. All right? Verse 18 of chapter 28. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This truth that he put forward to his disciples, this truth that they continued teaching, this clear truth that all authority has been given to Christ and that he has sent us out as representatives of that authority, right? That we are to go and make disciples of all nations. They were confident that they would succeed in that call that he had placed on them, not because they thought they were going to avoid tribulation, not because they thought they were going to avoid trials or difficulties. They knew, they were confident that they would succeed because they knew the man who was dead, who was standing before them telling them that all authority was his. And they trusted this man. So no matter what view you hold to in regards to how this millennial uh, text is to be understood, I want you to take away this clear reality that today, as it was for the generations past, all authority in heaven and on earth is Christ. Jesus. It is His. He is King of kings and Lord 
of lords. And He has called us to go and to do. And we can be certain that we will succeed in this. No matter what comes, no matter whether it is comfort that causes us to be lazy or whether it is tribulation that causes us to be fearful, we can be confident that the, that the authority that He has is over all things. And that He will not fail in the words of His God. Could not fail at it. We'll finish there. Um, and then uh, we'll pick up next week on judgment and heaven. <laughs>